and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast, we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. So, this is the first episode of season of three, Pete, and we're starting with a biggie. Milton Friedman, or Uncle Milty to his friends. <laughs> yeah, or according to the Times in 1969, a pixie and a pest. Hmm. So we've kind of avoided him for two series, and yet he's considered to be the most influential economist of the late 20th century. Why? That's not one of the 10 questions, by the way. But <laughs> I thought I'd just bring that up. It's a good question. Like, why have we avoided him? And I don't know why. Perhaps it's because he's a um, controversial. controversial figure. Perhaps it's because we thought we might find him sort of antithetical to our own views but actually you're looking at me like what does antithetical mean <laughs> uh, the opposite what we think yes uh, but actually you know the more more I looked at it the more it's like with all these things isn't it I think we've said before the more you read into someone the more you understand them yeah. perhaps uh, the more sympathetic to their views perhaps we'll know. wait and see and we will and, wait and, and, and see. maybe maybe the listeners you know well yeah, we'll, we'll see. So, uh, I've already said who we're looking at today. So, what I've got to ask you is, why is he still so relevant? Yeah, so we are looking at Milton Friedman. And you could argue that if Keynes was the most influential thinker of the first half of the 20th century, um, Friedman was probably the most influential thinker of the second half. And without question, his influence definitely carries on today. For some, for some people, they see him as the architect of the neoliberal economics, which dominates uh, current economic thought, uh, according to many. Although, um, I think we both read this article, didn't we? There was quite an interesting rebuttal of that idea uh, by Ross Roberts, fellow and much more popular podcaster. (laughs) Ignore that, ignore that. Um, But in terms of Friedman, he's a prolific author. Yeah. And without question, an original thinker. Yes. And a great communicator. Yes. So whatever you think of him, he is all those three things. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I guess he's controversial is that sort of sense that he's some kind of poster boy for neoliberalism and its excesses. Um, There's also some arguments that he got a bit too close to a fairly dodgy uh, regime in Chile. Yeah, we'll go on to that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But... For me, without question, he's full of interesting, challenging ideas. Yes, definitely. Um, not all of which fall neatly into that sort of left-right divide, which yeah. was a surprise to me in some respects when I researched him in more detail. If nothing else, his ideas will, chal- will challenge your own thinking. You'll, you'll have to sort of sharpen up uh, your own acts. If you what believe- I liked about him is he was just obviously so consistent in his viewpoint. Mm. And like, you know, you look at, politics today or whatever there's a lot of flipping and flopping about isn't there mm. he is consistent in whatever market it is he's consistent what, you, you, what you mean like education we need to do this yeah it's, it's free yeah. It's, it's free market yeah all the way well, like i mean obviously say, we'll get on to yeah you know he's consistent his, his views you know, his views certainly did evolve yeah, free the drug time. market you know free, free whatever whatever market <laughs> is pretty much let let individuals decide. Let let individuals, you know, it was freedom to choose. Yeah. That's the whole thing. I guess um, one of the reasons why he's controversial as well, or certainly why lots of people know about him, he was a politically active economist. 
certainly in the latter part of his life. Yeah. I mean, arguably when he did the economics work for which he's sort of most highly regarded, uh, he wasn't as political as he was later on. Um, and in some respects, he he quite consciously separated some of his political ideas from his economic theories. Um, I'll give you a little quote a quote by him. I can't. He's got a great voice. Yeah. He's got a really good sort of um, New York accent. And yeah. I, I can't do it. Yeah, I'm not going to try. You give me that. Lo- <laughs> I can sense that longing look. Yeah, yeah I was. I was yeah, getting excited. Yeah, you're not um, so to re- this is Friedman. He said, "To return to my own experience, I have been active in public policy. I've tried to influence public policy. I've spoken and written about issues of policy. In doing so, however, I have not been acting in my scientific capacity, but in my capacity as a citizen, an informed one. I hope. I believe that what I know as an economist helps me to form better judgments about some issues than I could without that knowledge. But fundamentally, my scientific work." should not be judged by my activities in public policy. Which is quite a strong statement, isn't it? Yeah. He's very sort of clear, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, muddy the water here. My economic work stands stands alone regardless of my sort of political platforms. Yeah. I don't know whether you can do that, but it's an interesting... Difficult. I suppose, well, we'll yeah. get on to it, you know, the way that he describes himself as a technical advisor. Yeah. To Chile. Yeah. Uh, and stuff. But anyway, we'll, we'll crack on. We will crack on. So... We always like in our episodes to sort of describe the time in which uh, someone wrote, you know, someone was particularly influential. But Friedman's definitely our time, you know. We've, yeah. You know, I remember uh, when I was studying my A-levels, we, we, you know, which is some, some time ago now. <laughs> but Friedman was like the big challenge, you know, you looked at monetarism as a sort yeah. of contrast with um, Keynesianism. He lived a very long time as well. Yeah. I mean, he lived through... Uh, the Great Depression. He actually sort of worked in the sort of New Deal administration uh, at Roosevelt. He lived through World War Two, lived through the Cold War, lived to see the triumph of capitalism over communism, you could argue, uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm sure he enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and like I said, I kind of see him as particularly of our time because when I started studying economics in the late 80s, the UK and the US had been a kind of experimental lab for his monetarist ideas, and the results were somewhat mixed. Okay, but I think what we'll start with, as we normally do, is his biog. Yeah, yeah. So like you happy it. with that? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. So he was born in Brooklyn in 1912. Yeah. But moved to New Jersey. Yeah. That's <laughs> what slipped into yeah. it there. Uh, when he was about one. Now his parents were, were Jewish immigrants. Yes. From what was then part of the Kingdom of Hungary. Uh, but he's now part of the Ukraine. But interestingly, it would have been in the Soviet Union for most of his life. Right. So you can't... Well, it definitely did, I think, sharpen his anti-communist thinking. You know, it's a kind of yeah. sliding doors moment. No, Imagine if the family hadn't left the Soviet Union. Yeah. And he's looking back. Christ, my life would have been yeah. really different. One thing that's striking in a lot of his interviews, and in fact in a lot of his writings is how fortunate he considered himself. Yeah. His biography is called Two Lucky People. Yeah. And in there's lots of little sort of mini biogs he writes, for example, for the, the Nobel Prize that he went on to win, spoiler alert. Uh, he talks about how lucky he considers himself and sort of various moments in his life where he was particularly sort of fortunate. Um, but yeah, I mean, he very much saw that sort of you know, sliding door moment, if you like, oh, I've had not 
yeah, mood I mean, to it. My family overshadowed his yeah. whole whole thinking, this idea that you know he was born in 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 freedom, as it were, and mm. and that is it. He kind of realised how lucky he was, and he wanted everyone sort of to have that chance. I think. Mm. Do you know how he ended up with the name Friedman? Did you read about that? No. Oh, it's quite an interesting story. Apparently, at an early age, his father went to live with a much older half-brother in Budapest. Right. It's like my pronunciation there, Budapest. Yeah. <laughs> so they had the same mother, but different fathers. And his half-brother's name was Friedman. And since he was always referred to as Friedman's brother, he took Friedman as his yeah, name. That's quite, yeah, that's quite interesting, actually. So he was one of four. He was the youngest and had three elder sisters. Um, all of them graduated high school, but he was the one who went on sort of to, you know, an academic life and an academic career. And he talks quite interestingly about the Jewish uh, value placed on education. There's some really interesting quotes there because he says, it's not just in terms of social mobility, but education as being a value right. in and of itself. And one of the reasons, or he sort of articulated this really, really, in a really interesting fashion, he sort of hypothesized that because the Jews had been persecuted and had to flee various countries at different points, that led to them placing a big value on education. Because, in a sense, what we nowadays would call human capital, you know, your sort of intellectual capabilities, that's yeah. the only thing you could take with you often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was really yeah, interesting, that is interesting, actually. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, you'll see. Is, lo- actually, I'm even more thinking about that. That is. Proper interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, when you're fleeing all the time, yeah. yeah, the only thing you have carrying yourself is your brain. I've yeah. never thought about that yeah, at all. It's a really, but, good, know, it's a really, really interesting good, point. Yeah. And he could talk. Oh, and brilliant, I, brilliant. <laughs> and I do yeah. wonder if having a large family, and particularly a lot of sisters, well, I've got a lot of sisters, yes. as you know, yeah. you kind of have to learn to talk and hold yeah. your own. Are you fighty? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the first time, uh, by the way, um, I once uh, had a meal with Pete, uh, with a group of people, Pete dived in first for the food, didn't wait for anyone else. This was a Kay's house. And your explanation was of it that you came from, <laughs> from having just loads of siblings and so you had to get in first. Yeah. Or you didn't eat. <laughs> I'll keep dog. So there you go. So, uh, yeah, you can relate to Friedman. Yeah, oh, I could, yeah. It's only, only four of them, slightly. Um, Small fry. Yeah. Um, so, apparently the car accident in his early teens had a scar on his upper lip. Right. Did yeah. you know that? No. No. Yeah. But one of the sort of running themes of our podcast is that he was a very bright child. Yeah. And he graduated early at 16 and got a scholarship to Rutgers. Right. Yeah. So, he gets a, his BA at Rutgers in 1932 and he encounters... One thing that he's quite generous about is the people who he believes join his life have influenced him. Right. And he's quite, you know, generous in sort of... He's generous with all of them, though. Even the even the people he's detracted, you know, like Keynes, for example. Yeah. He, he saw him as this intellectual, brilliant man. Yeah. Didn't he? Yeah. But ultimately disagreed with him. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. like you're saying, very generous. Yeah. So a chap he encounters at Rutgers is a guy called Arthur Burns, who was um, an assistant professor of economics at Rutgers. And he introduced him to Marshall's Principles of Economics. Right. Which is a nice segue. Yeah. Uh, to something we're going to mention yeah. later on. Yeah. Um, and apparently Friedman used to quote this Marshall's description of economics as an engine for the discovery of concrete truth. Yeah. Well, the yeah. thing is, the impression you get or you read about is that he was kind of Keynesian at the start, wasn't he? Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, another of the sort of teachers who influences him is a chap called Viner. Uh, did you sort of read about that? But it's quite an interesting story which gives you a sense of what Friedman was like as a student. So Viner is apparently at the blackboard and he's differentiating a function. I'm sure you remember differentiation. Remember differentiation? Uh, yeah. So apparently this guy made a mistake on the board, Viner. He's a brilliant man, but yeah. he made a mistake. It's a clear mistake. Um, but for the rest of this sort of session, he's refusing to admit he's made a mistake. And the rest of the class just sort of go along with it. Milton, no way. You've made a mistake. It's wrong. Yeah. It <laughs> just keeps persisting with it. And apparently at the end of uh, the class, Viner sort of said, yeah, yeah, I did. I did make a mistake. Right. Um, it's tough as a teacher to admit you've made a mistake. Yeah. It? But apparently Milton then used it as a bit of a, a maxim for his children. He said, if you make a mistake and refuse to admit it, you hurt yourself twice. Once when you make the mistake and again when you refuse to admit it. Wow. There you go. That's what a lovely, lovely stuff, life yeah. lesson for everyone there. Yeah. Did you come across the bit where he says, uh, um, where his ep- epiphany came from, that he knew that he wanted to study economics? He says, apparently, Freedom's uh, moment epiphany came when a geometry teacher uh, wrote the Pythagoras theorem or theory on the board and then quoted Keats right. and said, Ode of a, on a Grecian urn, and went, Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty, that is all I know on earth and all you need to know. Wow. And from that moment on, he went, this is what I love. What, economics or maths? Isn't that maths? Yeah, his love for maths. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but, but eventually, that then, <laughs> when he knew he wanted to take his studies uh, further, yeah. that was the thing. And I love that. We love a little bit of poetry. Yeah. yeah. So, just yeah. a little link there. That was his epiphany moment. I like a bit of Keats. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. La Belle Dame's La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Is that Keats? Yeah. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hyperion. That's Keats as well. I did English A level. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. That was a sliding doors moment for me, actually. I had a place to do English literature right. at Sheffield University. Yeah. So I signed up, ready to go, and then I changed my mind. Wow. And, and decided look to at you do now. economics. Joint um, host of the Economics in 10 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so anyway back to Friedman so he does uh, he does his masters at Chicago in 1933 um, and uh, that starts a long association with Chicago he's not yeah. teaching there yet so so before the war he's, he's in Washington and he, he ends up working with uh, Kuznets oh, you know? okay. so Kuznets um, on studies of income and wealth one of his studies um, and it does it's kind of the first time he's a little bit controversial actually I think he writes a study in which he talks about why doctors are paid more than other professions yes, I read that, um, yeah. due to the higher entry barriers. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you talked earlier about like free market this, free market that. I think he completely wanted to deregulate yeah, it did. like who can become a doctor. Yeah, and that's a, it's a really interesting point because yeah. I think I, I wrote that down somewhere about how um, the number of professionals had suddenly risen massively within America yeah. as creating a kind of a barrier to entry. Yeah. And it did make me think, actually, because obviously within education over here, there's all this thing about having a license, wasn't there? Like maybe bringing in a license or... But I know yeah. we have a teaching college, but, you know, but yeah. trying to professionalise yeah. it. And he would have hated that. Yeah, but it yeah. does make you think, doesn't it? It's yeah. like, what, does that mean anyone can just 
come in and teach and he'd be yeah. like yeah it's competition he'd, he'd, ultimately he'd, if they're not good you yeah. go somewhere else yeah no I think it's as simple as that that's what I'm saying about the consistency of yeah. the man is incredible it doesn't matter where you know and that's for doctors yeah, yeah. it reminds me of the, the kind of the Simpsons episode with Do- Dr Nick who's just dreadful doctor <laughs> but you know like he can enter the profession yeah. if he's rubbish he's rubbish you won't yeah. go to him again yeah. I mean you might be dead yeah <laughs> it's interesting you should say that though because that's my almost like they talk a lot about like bringing in competition and this Friedman would love this between schools and they have yeah. tried to do that in the UK yeah. to a certain degree but if you have competition between schools you do get losers yeah we'll get so on to this yeah so in a sense all the kids who go to the school yeah. that loses they've, yeah. you know they've had it really yeah I'm going to talk a bit about that later okay okay is that right okay. so anyway back to Friedman so in the 30s obviously that's the New Deal era in America yeah. so you're coming off the back of the Great Depression yeah Roosevelt's in power and uh, their route out of uh, the Great Depression at the time is very much influenced by Keynesian thought, yes. um, um, arguably. Yeah. yeah. And so episode two, season one. Yeah. <laughs> so there's lots of sort of government spending going on to try and sort of uh, you know boost so government spending in effect compensating for the lack of consumption yeah. and investment and so on. He himself does quite well out of the New Deal. Uh, Friedman and he's quite he's well aware of that and he talks about so our economists were in great demand at the yeah. time he had quite a high income um, you know I think he'd quite enjoy being in Washington as well yeah. so despite him turning against sort of the New Deal as a sort of an approach uh, to macroeconomic policy uh, he did he personally did quite well out of it and he, he's very aware of the irony of that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and during World War Two, he also developed a system that in the UK we would oh help to contribute as a key member of a team, uh, which developed what in America is called withholding tax, and we would call pay as you earn. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, you know, he devised that. Well, it was part of a team, yeah, in America, yeah, because yeah. I think the Americans were so concerned that you know to pay for the war in a, a, a non-inflationary manner. Right. It would require sort of tax okay. tax increases, yeah, yeah. and if you could tax people at source, then they couldn't they couldn't avoid the tax. In okay. effect, I would find it much more difficult. His wife described that as one of the worst things he ever did, sort of Friedman, because oh. she she and I think he obviously felt that later on this allowed for the massive expansion of government yeah, as yeah, he yeah, saw yeah. it yeah. after World War Two. So he, in a sense, contributed to that a technical solution yeah, to yeah. So no, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, so yeah you know again there's another sort of um, what well, one of the people he's working with this guy called Mitchell uh, you know Friedman again is I think Mitchell was quite a different thinker to him but was quite he's quite generous in talking about the lessons he learned from different people uh, and he talks about how Mitchell gave him a, a bit of a telling off because of the quality of his written work uh, and there's a good quote here from this guy Mitchell that Friedman quotes later he says there is some, some excuse for Simon, this is Kuznets, if he doesn't write clearly. After all, English was not his native, native language, and he did not learn it until his late teens. But there's none for you. English is your native tongue. Yeah, pretty hard. <laughs> but you, there is a clarity in Freeman's writing, whether you agree with it or yeah, disagree yeah, yeah. with it. And there's a, there's a clarity in the way he speaks as well. Yeah. And he sort of credits this guy Mitchell with partly, partly that. Um, during the war, though, he starts to develop his sort of dislike of government and also is, is very underwhelmed by some of the figures he meets. Um, he, he sort of meets a guy called Henry Morgenthau Jr., who was Roosevelt's uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and he said, I found him to be quite limited in his intellectual capacity. 
objective evidence of his meagre intellectual capacity was readily available. So what was this? This was kind of starting to undermine his faith in government. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So he does a PhD at Columbia in nineteen forty-six. Oh, hold up! I've got oh. about the fact that in oh. World War Two. Yeah, he on. worked as a statistician. Yeah. And there's an interesting story where it says he was attempting to apply mass to the testing of metals. And apparently on paper he had designed this super strong metal alloy for weapons. And like the economic kind of econometric tests were fantastic, really, really positive. And then when he put it into the lab, the old science dudes put it together and it produced a metal with all the strength of a ripe banana. <laughs> And, I did read that. Yeah, yeah. And, and apparently, again, that kind of, that for him was really, really a, an important moment mm. that all the, the economists who were doing theory, mm. clearly you've got to test it in the real world. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's a really interesting yeah. uh, kind of moment for him in his life yeah. when he experiences that for the first time. Yeah, though interestingly, as we'll see later on, some of his theories when they yeah, were put into practice. Yeah, which, yeah, and that's why I thought when I read that, I was like, <laughs> yeah. hold up a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 1946, he accepts a position at the University of Chicago. I should have said a little bit earlier, I think at one point in his career, he did face some anti-Semitism in terms yeah, okay. of, sort of, um, sort of acquiring a particular sort of role. Uh, but he finds a home at the University of Chicago, oh. and he is there for ages. He teaches price theory and monetary economics, um, there are over many, many decades. So he does develop an association with the, the Mon Pelerin group yes. in the late 40s. Yeah? We've talked about that in our Hayek episode, didn't we? Yes. Can you remind our listeners what the Mon Pelerin group oh, is? Could, do I have, uh, well, I would encourage them to go and watch the um, Kate Rayworth little video about the Mon Pelerin Society, which is yeah. basically this kind of free market think tank, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of. You know. Yeah, it was, well, at the time, it was a relatively small group of people who sort of committed themselves to sort of try and fight yeah. for free market ideals, I guess. So Hayek was amongst them, wasn't he? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, but Freeman was there pretty much, you know, at the start as well. I think it's that he does credit the Montpellerin Society as well with a kind of contributing to his political awakening yeah. as well, I think. Uh, and are, he, you, are you going to talk about how he met his wife? I was going to do that a little bit later on. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, in terms of you know, the Montpellerin starts this sort of um, association with a- active sort of pursuit of sort of free market policies, if you like, or trying to influence people to sort of take up more free market positions. And throughout his life, he ends up being an advisor to Nixon, to Reagan. You know, he, he is he is very influential. Although yeah. I don't think he ever took a paid role. Sort of for any, for, any, for any of those, I'm not sure. No, I, well, I don't know. Did he for Schwarzenegger? Schwar- Schwarzenegger? Yeah. I think Schwarzenegger credited him as being sort of very influential. Right. Uh, Schwarzenegger had a, had a Milton Friedman day for him on January the 29th. Oh, did he? Yeah. yeah that's nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll have an economics in 10 day one day. Yeah. But yeah, he, he is sort of writing popular economics. Uh, you know, he does a sort of an article in... Newsweek, which I think he alternates with sort of more liberal thinkers like Paul Samuelson and people oh, okay. like that. Yeah. So he is a, a public intellectual, if you like. Yeah. Um, in a similar way as you could say someone like Galbraith would be for sort of a, yeah. a more sort of left of centre yeah. uh, perspective. Um, I've got a joke about um, that as well, okay. by the way. So I'm going to ask you a little question for you, first of all. Love it. I want you to put these economists in high order. Okay. Excellent. I'll try anyway. Yeah. 
Friedman, yeah. Keynes, and Galbraith. Well, the fact that he was called a pixie by Time magazine yeah. suggests Friedman was very small. So I'm putting him as the shortest. Yeah. And I think we spoke in the Keynes episode that he was actually quite a tall man. Yeah. But I think Galbraith's quite tall. Yeah. So what you got? I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick Keynes tallest. You're wrong. Yeah. Friedman was small though he was really yeah. physically small he yeah. was I think 5 foot 2 right which is smaller than my wife and, and she is small right yeah. well, that's a lovely thing to say yeah <laughs> <laughs> Keynes was 6 foot 6 Galbraith was 6 foot 10 no really. yeah it's amazing he, well and to be fair in the videos you watch of him he does look at all man yeah mm. well in the videos you watch of Galbraith there's this one where he's walking around this sort of like miniature town Right. Like um, it's like a, it's kind of as as good as you got for CGI at the time, but I think it's like some prop. Yeah. prop. So he's walking around this little, thinking maybe that was a real. Time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. there's a joke about that anyway. Where yeah. It's obviously coming from a, a right wing perspective. Someone apparently joked that all great economists are tall, with two exceptions: Milton Friedman and J.K. Galbraith. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. very good, very good. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, we t- we mentioned about uh, the Montpellier site. So yeah, you mentioned his wife, and this is um, he ends up very happily married to someone who was called Rose Director. That was yeah. a, a similar background to him in some respects, a sort of um, from an em- emigre background, uh, Jewish yeah. background like himself from Eastern Europe. But he ends up by chance, and he keeps sort of playing it. Yeah. He says this a few times in his his biography. By chance, I ended up sitting next to her. In one of Viner's lecturers, uh, he said Viner seated people alphabetically. Yeah, alphabetically. Yeah. yeah. She sat next to me, and that has shaped my whole life. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, um, beautiful moment. Yeah. Of serendipity. Yeah. She she's an interesting woman though. Yes. I mean, we've not got an, a sort of an episode yeah. to, to devote to her, but um, she was the only woman in the class as well. I think, which isn't surprising. It's yeah, not much yeah, better yeah. than that now in no, economics no. to be. We've got about a lot, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, life lifelong partnership between the two, um, and she obviously co-writer later on. Yeah, co-writer of some of his sort of more popular yeah. economics books, but also used to sort of read a lot of his work as oh, well. Okay. She was like first reader for a lot of his work. Yeah. So even when she wasn't sort of working herself and was just sort of bringing bringing up kids, say just you know, yeah. uh, not just at all. Um, it's nice that they're in the class together rather than him teaching her, which is a common theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, equals. Yeah, but you equals. do get a sense yeah. that you know they are you know very much equals in yeah. terms of sort of. And I'm, quite, I'm going to finish tonight later on, by the way, uh, with a quote. He talks about the secret to a happy marriage. Oh, lovely! It's a really nice quote. Oh, beautiful! Uh, I'll come up with that. I'll, I'll come back to that later on. I'm going to give him the last word. Okay, um, good. Um, interestingly, when they had children together, he had to change his working hours. He used to like working through the night between midnight and five. Right. And obviously, is yeah, that's not conducive that. to no. sort of uh, life, you know, life with children. Well, you, yeah. you know that. Have you found during lockdown, by the way, your your kids are becoming more nocturnal? Well, no, we we try we set rules, <laughs> so they still have to go to bed at a certain time. I mean, they sleep in for ages. Yeah, but that's a different matter. Yeah, I'm just finding that kids are staying up late because there's these theories, aren't there, that teenagers actually. If you left them to their own yeah. devices, would have quite different hours. Yeah, we're larks and they're owls. Yeah, that's how well they're explained. Friedman, very much an owl. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So he sort of he's obviously got a long working life, and we'll talk a little bit more about his ideas in a moment. But it's kind of after the main body of his work is completed, he has a kind of afterlife as a popular economist. He gets his own TV show. There's lots of sort of popular economics books. Wins the Nobel Prize in the mid seventies as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think after his Nobel Prize, he's at the Hoover Institution for for ages as a right. kind of sort of uh, that's the sort of where he was and sort of the position from where he wrote his more sort of popular nice. works and so on. And he was an informal advisor to a number of successful and successful, uh, sorry, unsuccessful and successful presidential campaigns. Yeah. Uh, but an informal advisor, I think he was quite reluctant to take yes. the Washington dollar. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Thatcher so, called him a intellectual freedom fighter. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bitten off more, I can, more than I can chew here but yeah. I'm going to try and pick up on four ideas we're probably going to have to go quickly yeah we'll try and go quickly yeah. so one of the ideas um, that he's quite famous for is, is or it comes out in a work called a theory of the consumption function yeah yes. so basically in Keynesian economics there's a sort of consumption function consumption in economics just means spending by private individuals like you and I and a sort of traditional consumption function is quite simple it's basically Consumption, what you spend, is a function of income, what you earn, and your marginal propensity to consume. Now, I think we've mentioned the marginal propensity to consume before, yeah, but in essence, it just simply means if I give you an extra pound or an extra dollar, what proportion of it do you spend? Yeah, I think we did it when we talked about the multiplier. We did, yeah. So consumption is basically based, it's quite a simple idea, it's based on these two factors, how much you earn and your tendency, if you like, to spend uh, you know, ex- extra money or not. Now, Friedman sort of brought in a more complex idea of what determines people's spending. And he came up with something called the permanent income hypothesis. Yeah. And this was the idea that a household's consumption and savings decisions are not just based on uh, sort of your current income, but also what you expect to earn in the future. Yeah. Or what you expect to happen in the future, if you like. Yeah. So... Part of the reason why he developed this was because they were finding that cut, cutting taxes didn't always lead to the increases in consumption that, yeah. that the government had anticipated. And the reason for that is if people thought the taxes were temporary, then they wouldn't spend the money. Yeah. Um, but you do see sort of some people's um, spending choices uh, determined by their expectations of future, future yeah, income. Yeah, definitely. So um, a mutual friend of ours, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 John David, yeah. yeah. Uh, he became a partner in a legal firm recently. And to do that, you have to take out a fairly sort of significant loan uh, in order to sort of buy into the partnership. Yeah, right, okay. That's a big yeah. sum of money. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. my dad had to do the same for yeah. his sort of GP practice, you know, which is yeah. a, part, a partnership scheme as well. You have to kind of buy your way in if you like. Now, you only do that if you expect yeah. to earn sort of a, a lot of money sort of further down the line. Yeah. So it's quite a simple concept in retrospect, but at the time it was quite revolutionary. It's saying, well, Keynes's ideas or, you know, the Keynesian idea of the consumption function is too simple. People's spending decisions aren't just determined by yeah. uh, their, their current income, by expectations of future income as well. Yeah. So pretty, pretty relevant for now, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. mean, in terms of like lockdown and you know furloughing and whatever, you know, the range of people about whether 
Yeah. You know, is this just a short-term phenomenon for me? Yeah. You know, or, or am I yeah. going to get back? I suppose it kind of goes... That probably will relate in many respects whether we have, you know, this thing about a V-shaped, re- you know, mm. recovery or an L-shaped recovery. We'll, we'll pay into that quite a bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. But an interesting idea. So, I mean, that that's sort of... Um, one idea I remember studying, which I think yeah, is an interesting that. one. It links in a little bit to the Fisher equation, which I assume we're going to talk about. Yes, we yes. will when we in the context of sort of monetarism. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so shall I move on to monetarism? Yeah, why not? Because I, I do think this has a role because we're going to talk about the obviously... Well, you, you, you go. Okay. So, um, so monetarism, it, it, it became a sort of a, an opposing school of thought to Keynesianism. So yeah. if you look at the post-war... Uh, sort of intellectual debate in economics it's between Keynesianism and monetarism or it certainly is once it hots up in the sort of yeah. late 60s and early 70s and, and and Friedman is seen as the sort of the foremost proponent of, of monetarism um, so <laughs> the famous quote by him inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon now, I remember that quote yeah. because it's the one I learned for A-level and I tried shoehorning it into <laughs> everything. <laughs> okay, I wanted to get a quote. Yeah. Yeah. But Friedman, to a certain extent, and, and in some respects, when you read sort of economists commenting about freedom or sort of people within the field, often they te- speak glowingly, regardless of their sort of political perspectives, about this particular piece of work. And it's a work which Friedman co-authored with um, Anna Schwartz. Yeah. And again, he's very generous in terms of the praise he gives to her. Yeah. A Monetary History of the United States, 1867 to 1960. Yeah. And what was interesting about that is that he sort of maps sort of changes in the money supply uh, with sort of the real economy, if you like. So he's looking at when do we have uh, inflationary periods, when do we have recessions. And in, in this work, he does it's a, it's a work of economic history. Uh, you're crunching what probably are quite hard numbers to acquire, yeah. you know, but he's coming up with this um, a very detailed sort of history, which seems to suggest that there is a link between the money supply and uh, changes in the real economy, yeah. which Keynes, Keynesians and Keynes had largely dismissed and yeah. said, look, money doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. So um, Friedman is saying, well, money really does matter. And the reason why this is important is because eventually um, Friedman starts to unpick the traditional view of what caused the Great Depression. Yeah. So the the traditional thinking about the, the, the Great Depression is almost oh, you get the Wall Street crash, you get a catastrophic fall in consumer and business confidence, and then you know that leads to the Great Depression. Yeah, classic kind of yeah. animal spirit stuff that yeah. we talked about in the Keynes episode. So for Friedman, there is an alternative view, yeah, uh, which he begins to develop, which is ultimately the Great Depression would have just been a normal recession were it not for mistakes made by the Federal Reserve Bank and the closures of lots of um, you know banks yeah so in other words it's not about animal spirits it's not about confidence it's about a lack of liquidity yeah. and in, when we talk about liquidity in economics we mean there's not enough cash there's not yeah. enough cash or access to cash uh, in the economy yeah because loads of banks collapsed didn't they and and um you know they just basically needed to finance didn't they yeah and the federal reserve bank at the time was quite keen to um sort of keep the u.s on the gold standard this was uh a sort of an exchange rate system 
Uh, and that really required the UK left the gold standard and then the Federal Reserve, almost in response to that, whacked up interest rates to sort of, right. um, you know, protect the value of, uh, of, of, of the American currency. So... And obviously Friedman would have been completely against that, wouldn't he? Yeah. He, he wanted free-floating... Yeah, no, he was fundamentally opposed to yeah. sort of fixed exchange rate systems, which he saw as, uh, well, not, not a good thing. So... That, that's probably, you know, when you read about, you know, economists and their views on Friedman, they all think this is a great piece of work. And it does, you know, even when we teach sort of, uh, you know, A-level economics or high school economics, if you like, increasingly you teach both the sort of Keynesian view and the monetarist explanation of, of the Great Depression. And when you look at the data, it is quite compelling. You're looking at um, um, a contraction of, of the money supply at just the wrong time. Yeah. So it does make sense. So it's probably at this point it's worth mentioning uh, the Fisher equation. Yes. Because yeah? to a certain extent, Friedman's work is a reframing of um, quite an old piece of economics developed by someone called Irving Fisher, called the Fisher Identity. And this is where you have on one side of the equation the money supply. So that's, uh, you know, all, all the money in the economy. That sounds very straightforward. And actually, as we'll see later on. Yeah. Money is not yeah, straightforward or yeah. easy to measure. But let's imagine it is. So you've got the money yeah. supply of the economy. Let's imagine it's a really simple economy in which it's just notes and coins. Yeah? yeah. So you've got that. And then you multiply that by the velocity of circulation. So imagine I take a tenner out of a cash point, an ATM. Uh, how many times does that get spent? It doesn't just get spent once. I spend it in a shop. The shopkeeper spends it in a restaurant. The restaurant owner spends it somewhere else. So you can measure that. You yeah. can measure how many times that unit of currency gets spent. That's the velocity of circulation. Right. So the money supply times the velocity of circulation is equal to, on the other side of the equation, the price level, yeah. rises in which we would call inflation, times the number of transactions in the economy. Yeah? Basically or output. Output, yeah, basically. So Friedman's view, or the monetarist view, is that in normal times the velocity of circulation is fairly constant. Yeah. And the number of transactions is also, you know, or output grows, but a certain sort of set rate. It doesn't vary enormously. So in a sense, if you do change the money supply in normal times, the only variable it will affect on the other side is inflation. So for him, this is where the quote, uh, inflation is always an everywhere monetary phenomena. If you, if you accept that the velocity of circulation in normal times, it's fairly fixed. You accept the economy grows, you know, not that much, at a fairly steady rate. Then changes in the money supply will affect inflation yeah. in normal times. And yeah. they're, they're pretty much the data to back that up, don't they, with yeah. velocity? Yeah. But the, the reason I say maybe potentially there's a link to the permanent income hypothesis is it, it sort of ties in with that. If you know that spending is going to be consistent over a lifetime, permanent income hypothesis... Mm. I think that links to why the velocity of money could potentially be consistent mm. because mm. you are... Yeah, yeah, so you, you don't... Yeah, 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 I see what you mean. So spending stays fairly consistent because people think even if I've, you know... Yeah, whatever happens, yeah. I, I, I still think in the future this will happen, so therefore I'm going to continue yeah. to spend. Yeah. So that's why I said maybe there's a yeah, little yeah. link there. I can see that, yeah, I can see that. So that's the sort of, the, the in essence, the, the basics of... Yeah. Um, MV equals PT. It is, yeah. So this is picked up by a number of governments in the 1980s, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but the Thatcher government in the UK in particular, in particular was desperate to sort of bring down yeah. inflation. 
So they saw sort of the, you know, Friedman's view uh, of what caused inflation. Thatcher fully accepted that and attempted to implement his yeah. policies, if you like. Um, so, I mean, we could talk about that in criticisms or maybe we should just sort of... Yeah, you know, medium-term financial strategy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> basically, it did prove very difficult. Money is actually much harder yeah. than you think to measure because, uh, in a sense... Friedman wanted to do away with central banks. Yeah. So his view was you should almost just have a computer which generates a set increase yeah. in the money supply yeah, which corresponds yeah. which corresponds with economic growth. Yeah. yeah, in effect. So the money supply just grows in line yeah. with with the needs of the economy if you if you like. Um so the Thatcher government tried to think okay, if we want to bring down inflation uh, assuming that V and T are constant, yeah. then we need to bring down the money supply or we need to target increases in the money supply and yeah. keep them within certain sort of limits. Now, the problem is money is actually harder than you think, firstly, to measure. Yeah. M0, M1, M2. Yeah. I mean, you there's look lots of... It's so yeah. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't ever having to learn those yeah. bloody things. It was awful. Boring. Yeah. But you kind of think, well, what is money? I mean, it is a question you probably need to ask. You know, yeah. money is, in a sense, whatever anyone accepts yeah, exactly. as, as money. Uh, so, But even you kind of think, oh, yeah, fair enough. But when you start looking at a modern economy, you think, are credit default yeah. swaps money? Yeah. You know, are government bonds money? Well, just you from know? a simple point of view of, a, of, of who is allowed to offer credit. Yeah. And I think that was one of the issues, wasn't it, that with, with regards to the system, is that suddenly businesses were like, well, if you can't afford it now, yeah. we'll give you credit. Yeah. So that creates yeah. money within the, the yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, banks can create money, yeah. you know, and, and lots of... And, to, and particularly in the, the UK in the 1980s, it was a massive deregulation of financial yeah, markets exactly. at the same time, yeah. which made it even more difficult to try and yeah. control the money supply. So the two sort of aspects of, sort of monetarism almost worked in conflict with one another in that, you know, the belief in the free market, deregulating of financial markets, but that then made it very yeah. difficult to control the money supply in a meaningful way. And the interest in this country, they did, oh yeah, we're going to set a target for M3, which I yeah. think was one of the sort of measures of the money supply. Oh, that, oh that's not, not really working very well. So we'll set one for M0. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. that. And then quietly, they just abandoned the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. yeah, But they also discovered as well, pretty obviously, well not obviously, that velocity wasn't consistent. Yeah, I mean, probably, though, it is a lot of the time. You know, it's just yeah. that during recessions, it isn't. And to be honest, Friedman would agree with that, I think. So I think he would suggest that, um, you know, if velocity falls, that means people want to hoard more cash. Yeah. And therefore, you need to increase the amount of cash in the economy. So he thought, for example, what Japan was trying to do in the 80s to sort of, uh, sorry, in the, in the 90s to sort of get out of its deflationary period was perfectly sensible. So I'm not sure... No, but that was the restricting of money. Yeah. If you were trying to restrict it, you know, people... We just saw kind of velocity massively increase as yeah. all that data. Yeah. But I, 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 I kind of think about this in, in relation to um, Goodhart's law. You know, this idea that once you start targeting something, yeah, it then starts, you know, reacting in a different way than yeah. previously. Yeah. You know, and and for me, that's a kind of a classic example. I think of good harsh law. You can disagree with that. Mm. Well, it's interesting because yeah. what I think related to this is where we end up eventually in the UK is with inflation targeting. 
Yeah. Um, so it's well, you end up with the demand for money you're targeting rather than the supply of money, aren't you? Yeah, but almost just the laying out of a target as well means right. that people oh, react, diff- yeah. react differently yeah. to it. So in a sense, okay. if, if, for example, and it, it does link to something Friedman was interesting, interested in as well, like wage demands and sort yeah. of rational expectations and so on. But eventually in the UK, we move away from sort of the monetarist approach to try and bring in down inflation. And nowadays, the central bank, the Bank of England, targets inflation yeah. at 2%. And it does, you're right, absolutely right, it uses the base rate uh, to try and control uh, demand for money and there, thereby consumption and investment. Uh, so if inflation is getting too high, it tries to rein in yeah. sort of demand, if you like. Would but, you argue uh, after of the, the financial crisis that... They kind of have learned the lessons from like the monetary history of the United States, you know, in terms of how they responded. Yeah, but, the but Ben crisis. Bernanke said that quite explicitly. He right. said, so, you know, Milton, you know, we got it wrong last time, uh, uh, but we're not going to get it wrong this time right. in response to sort of um, a liquidity crisis in the UK. Yeah. And they did respond. I mean, if you think about the bank bailouts, however controversial they were, I suppose if you juxtapose that with the Great Depression where loads of banks did fail... And you end up with a, a liquidity crisis. Yeah. The same thing was avoided to a large extent, you know, by the concerted efforts of sort yeah. of governments on both sides of the Atlantic. But this is the issue now, isn't it? Is that interest rates have continually just come yeah. down and come down yeah. and come down, and come, yeah. And now we've got nowhere else to go yeah. if we need another. Yeah. yeah. But the point I was going to make about inflation, yeah, like, inflation targeting. Sorry, yeah. you know, you said about good hearts sort yeah, of ideas. Yeah. As soon as you start targeting something, people react differently. But that can occur in a positive way. Right. If people start seeing that the Bank of England is targeting inflation at 2% and they believe that the Bank of England is going to be successful yeah. in that endeavour, then their wage demands will change. They'll think, all oh, right, well, I'm not going to demand more than yeah. you know, 2% if I believe, or you know, 3% if I believe that inflation is yeah. only going to be 2%. So they'll start to temper their wage demands and then you get less of the cost pressures yeah, yeah, yeah. That, le- that often lead to inflation. Yeah. So in a sense, the, the target, just the existence of the yeah. target, yeah. Uh, and the longer you have a good, you good track record. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that was one of the things about Carney, wasn't it? About forward guidance and, and about how kind of quickly that kind of went. Yeah. And it's been described as, what, the un- unreliable boyfriend or whatever. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to maybe get concerns about that because he was basically saying, wasn't he, at that time, oh, interest rates might go up, as soon as like unemployment comes down to a certain level, yeah. everyone fixed their mortgages, yeah. and then interest rates never went up, and then suddenly yeah. they're paying over the odds for their mortgages. For yeah. Them. So yeah. again, there's a kind of a constant, no. I, I think you can you know, um, trust is so important, or yeah. that reliability. Yeah. I think. Well, Friedman wanted to completely get rid of central bank. Well, no, and that's the thing. And, and but you can sort of understand why because because ultimately, you know, you take all the emotion out of it, don't you? You know, and, yeah. and that's the thing about this three to four to five percent. Just keep on tapping yeah, yeah. that along. Get a, a robot yeah. involved, and then that's it. Okay. So, and do you think we've covered that? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So the the third idea I wanted to look at uh, was negative income taxes. Yeah. Go so, for it. This is, again, he's just a quite a prolific thinker. There's lots of sort of, and you, you know, you were saying earlier about, he thinks about everything, sort of lots of different sort of sectors of um, not just the economy, but sort of different areas of sort of life where economics can potentially be applied. Um, an economist we should look at in a future um, podcast is Gary Becker. Yeah. Because I think, it, yeah, exactly. you know, to a certain extent, he's the 
the daddy of that, like where you apply economics to everything. Yeah, yeah but free, not, I've free. got a quote about it from him oh, later right. on. Yeah, oh, interesting. I'll look forward to that. Right. So the reason why I wanted to, I mean, negative income taxes is not. I don't think it's sort of Friedman's particularly remembered for it, but I think right. it's an interesting and topical idea because it bears some relationship to the universal basic yeah. income, which a lot of people were talking about. Yeah. So. Basically, Freeman didn't like the welfare system in the US. He believed it was costly and it led to entrenched poverty. So his alternative system was that let's basically everyone in the America should fill out tax returns, regardless of whether you're working or not. But if you uh, weren't working, then you would receive what he called a negative uh, income tax. So what that means is, let's say in the UK we have a personal allowance. So that's the amount you're allowed to earn tax-free. Yeah. So you, I think it's about thirteen thousand pounds. Yeah. But let's say in our mythical economy, uh, we've only got one tax rate, fifty percent, but you don't pay it on the first ten thousand pounds. Yeah. So that's your personal allowance, if you like. Now, for Friedman, he said, let's imagine um, you don't actually earn ten thousand pounds. If the tax rate's fifty percent, you should get fifty percent of that personal allowance. So in a sense, you should get five grand yeah. Yeah, as a sort of guaranteed sort of basics, if you like. If you then went on uh, to earn, earn more, that, that, that was fine. You know, you could earn, like, let's say you earned eight grand, then you might get a grand back. So the 2,000, which is you're short of the personal allowance, you would get 50% of that back. Now, if you went above that 10, 15,000 pounds, Obviously, then you get taxed as everyone else does. But the idea is um, everyone gets a basic income, but it still incentivizes work because he was very keen that... Because if you have a uh, look at arguments about the UBI, is that it it doesn't incentivize. Yeah, yeah, because let's say you had a a universal basic income of 10 grand and, you know, everyone got 10 grand. Where's the incentive to earn 11 grand? It's pretty minimal, yeah? Whereas, you know, this sort of allows for some form of incentivization of of work yeah part of the reason he was attracted to it is that it was simple so there's no extensive means testing which is very costly yeah by means testing you know i mean sort of you know testing how much people earn and are you entitled to this entitled to that and so on yeah, yeah. everyone gets this you know this this is the benefit there's not like a whole sort of raft of benefits and also He's kind of like, well, people... And I remember watching him being interviewed about this. Oh, why people spend it on sort of this or that? And he's like, well, that's their choice. Yeah. It's their free... You know, they are free to do that's that. That's the thing. It's the consistency yeah. again. Yeah. Um, but in a sense, it would be a much simpler system. One of the things we didn't mention in our Adam Smith episode is Adam Smith used to talk about um, the four canons of taxation. So a tax system, should, you know, should be sort of simple, easy to administer... Yeah. Uh, you know, people should know what they've got to pay and when they've got to pay it. Um, but you can also talk about the administrative costs of a tax system. And for Friedman, one of the problems with the welfare system is it's extremely co- costly yeah, yeah. to administer. Yeah. And this would be a much simpler system that if you were paying taxes, let's say you're earning loads of money and paying taxes, at least you would know there wasn't taxes being wasted yeah. sort of on bureaucracy of an overly complex system. But it's not, it's not just a negative thing. It's not just about rich people. It's also like, no, this is... I think there is an element of human dignity here as well. Yeah. And also, like, you shouldn't be telling people what they can spend their money on. You know? Yeah. 
Um, and, and this is one of the studies of, of UBI, isn't it? Is that in most of the studies they have done, people spend it on the right thing. Oh, I say right yeah. thing, that's probably a yeah, yeah. wrong, but you know, yeah. what society would deem to be the right mm. thing. More education, you yeah. know, and yeah. healthy food, whatever it might be. And Freeman in the interview I watched talks about that and he sort of said, because the interview is, oh, what about all these people? He says, well, yeah. you know, you're always going to get some people yeah. who are going to sort of do the wrong thing. But for yeah. if you're going to have a welfare system, this one would be better yeah. for the vast majority of people. And yeah. going on about the simplification, this is obviously a set point to the negative income tax. He was for a flat tax, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, just yeah. one tax, you know. Everyone pays and it. And everyone pays it. Yeah. Again, Which has so, been tried in some countries. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, pushed by kind of people, people over here, like the IA would, would, would suggest that. But again, in terms of a simplification and also kind of to get around the avoidance of tax and mm. things like that. Mm. So yeah, an interesting one, really. Yeah, because UBI is seen as something that is kind of quite left wing. Yeah, 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 and there is Milton Friedman saying actually, yeah. we can, we a can form actually of it. Yeah, it, 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 it differs, it. Yeah. but you know, a form yeah. of it is certainly something Friedman was proposing, yeah. sort of in the in the seventies, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, another sort of sort of last contribute. Well, the, to be honest, I say last. He was quite prolific, yes. but the other one I'm going to focus on is the idea of, uh, of the long-run Phillips curve. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. The reason I'm going to t- touch on this is because it's another part of Friedman's sort of demolition of Keynesian thinking right. or attempts to okay. demolish Keynesian thinking. So the Phillips curve is not a, an idea of Keynes himself. Um, and we, we could probably do an episode on this guy, but uh, I think he's a New Zealand economist yeah, yeah. called Alban Phillips. And he did a really simple uh, thing, which was he plotted wage inflation, which is sort of a key determinant of inflation, full stop, against unemployment over 100 years in the UK from, I think, roughly the 1850s to the 1950s, approximately. And it's a really simple thing. If you did sort of very basic maths, and he plotted a line of best fit, and it seemed to indicate there's an inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. In other words, if you want low inflation, you have to accept high unemployment. If you want uh, um, low unemployment, you have to expect higher inflation. It seems to indicate some kind of trade-off between those two variables. So Friedman makes a a speech in the 60s, uh, in in the mid-60s, 1967, to the American Economics Association, because actually governments were using this you know they were using it so okay and you know everyone i think is it nixon who made the famous quote we're all Keynesians now or something like that so and in in this country in the uk they talked about butt skeleton which is basically the conservative uh chancellor exchequer rab butler the labor chancellor exchequer of hugh gates school it didn't matter who was in power they would adopt sort of keynesian policies and they were trying to actively manage aggregate demand so government spending or consumption and investment through taxation. And partly that was informed by this idea of a Phillips curve. Like, oh, if you want a low unemployment, yeah, you're going to have to accept higher inflation. So Friedman basically starts to take this on and says, look, this is not, this doesn't happen in the long run. Yeah. Um, so he is, antici- and, and this is quite sort of prophetic almost, because at the time when he's writing the 1960s, um, Phillips curve seems, according to the data, to be fairly robust, or certainly it had been for the previous 100 years. But he basically says, well, ultimately, 
people can only be fooled temporarily you know why are people brought back into work by higher higher wages they might think oh yeah i'm unemployed i'll come back to work if wages are higher and lo and behold they are but if that isn't an increase in real wages in other words it's just because inflation's gone up people aren't going to be tricked yeah sort of in the long term if you like by that so in other words you can't sort of get people back to work simply by sort of pumping money into the economy and that leading to sort of higher wage inflation it's not going to work and actually when you think about that it does make a certain amount of sense doesn't it if you were like a trade union leader and sort of engaged in collective bargaining you're going to have an awareness of inflation surely aren't you so you're going to think well hang on a minute i'm not going to accept sort of a a five of a 4% wage increase for my members if inflation's 5%. That's actually a real terms sort of wage cut. Yeah. So Friedman is pointing this out and saying, well, look, ultimately, you can't sort of boost unemployment, or you reduce unemployment simply by I- increasing wages if that is just caused by wage inflation. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen. And in a sense, what he was predicting there is what came about in the 1970s, stagflation, where, where you started to get points that appeared to the right of the original Phillips curve. So it seemed that unemployment and inflation were rising at the same time, which shouldn't happen, according to the Phillips curve. And to be fair to him, he kind of did sort of call that yeah. before anyone else did in the 1960s. And this is important because ultimately he was seen as a, an outrider for years, mm. wasn't he? As like, mm. you know, fringe viewpoints. I mean, we've talked about this in our... Um, positivity kind of special and our coronavirus one about the kind of Overton window and he's mm. just been knocking at the door knocking at yeah. the door knocking at the door and now suddenly bomb yeah. he's there to say yeah. that this is it this is yeah. the reason I've been talking about this for a while now yeah. now will you start believing me yeah and, and yeah. he's there interestingly I mean when you look at um, why inflation unemployment did rise uh, at the same time in the 1970s I think it is a more complex picture than, than is suggest, you know, yeah. suggested by this. You look at the formation of OPEC in the early 70s yeah, and massive stuff, sort that? of cost-push inflation, sort of that brings about. But certainly you could argue, you know, in simple terms, he called what yeah. was later going to happen. Now, we teach that as money illusion, don't we, Pete? We do, yeah. And we talk almost the opposite of money illusion is uh, rational expectations. Yeah. yeah. So the idea that, you know, you, you expect... Yeah. Uh, so you don't suffer from money illusion. You don't suffer from money illusion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. So I think that those are the four sort of main ideas I was going yeah. to touch upon. Is there anything else you wanted to well, mention in terms of not, theory? Not really. I just think it's just so important that you we all appreciate just his overall viewpoint is free markets, free markets, free markets. Yeah. Like or freedom of choice and so on. I mean, you can see it within the school structure that I talk about a little bit later on you can see it as you saw with regards wages you know just no barriers to entry even if it was like a medical i don't know qualification you need it's like it's still a barrier yeah. and and it's your unions who kind of put that up you know um yeah. there's a bit in about where one of his proudest moments was fighting for the um the army he was kind of drafted to kind of have a discussion with regards to vietnam um and about a kind of a volunteer army yeah, getting rid of conscription. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, yeah. you're saying, well, what these people are wanting to choose to to volunteer within this army, you know, yeah. 
why don't you allow it? And and the guy said, look, I don't want these mercenaries fighting for it. And, and he kind of uses this thing about, well, I'm a mercenary, you're a mercenary, just because we do things for whatever. Yeah. And so that, that idea, again, about freedom of choice is so important. Yeah. I think it's important, though, to point out that even though um, he was free market completely, pretty much, and he didn't want government regulation and mm. so on, you know, when it comes to the environment, mm. he did believe in a, you know, a kind of a tax system f- for that. He didn't think there should be kind of like lots of regulation, mm. you know, in terms of saying that you need to all buy green cars or whatever. Mm. You know, mm. you kind of have a carbon tax. Mm. That was his way mm. of bringing it about, bringing in the market for carbon. Yeah. And, and so he sees the free market process as a way of, of dealing with those problems. Yeah, there's I mean, a, a, to be honest, we'll come to this when we look at criticisms because um, he's a very compelling thinker, a very compelling speaker. But it is the market, the market, the yeah. market. And for me, well, when we come to our conclusions, I don't think it allows enough nuance in terms of what well, markets do bring about suboptimal outcomes yeah. sometimes. Well, and also his thinking sometimes when he goes, right, this is an individual's choice, so I don't think we should get involved. But when it starts having an impact on a third party, an externality, mm. then it is right to tax mm. it mm. and the example he uses is about how he doesn't feel that the government should have regulated seat belts yeah because ultimately seat belts are an individual concern yeah. and you're thinking well hold up a second yeah. because surely you might feel obliged to you know behave in a particular manner that might actually be worse for society yeah, yeah. wherever it might be i don't know yeah. no i mean I do take issue with that, uh, you know, I mean, and we'll, we'll come back to that later on, this yeah. sort of application of, but he was consistent. <laughs> he was, he was, he was amazingly consistent. Anyway, just, just to finish off this section, uh, we've sort of mentioned this a few times, what a powerful speaker he was, he's sort of a, a master of, of rhetoric, you know, yeah. a great turn of phrase. Some of his quotes, I think, are one, you know, they're written, you like them or dislike them, they're compelling, you know, they, they make you stand up and take notice. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch, yeah? Yeah. That's a classic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was it. Yeah, apparently. Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, inflation is taxation without legislation. Right. I quite like that. Yeah. You know, the well, idea it erodes sort of... Uh, yeah, that's a classic. ...spending power. This one I, I really like because it kind of summarises his view. <laughs> and it's interesting. I think it's relevant in the current crisis where governments are engaged in some quite sort of radical programmes. But he said, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government programme. Right. Yeah. And we again... What do we use that in... We use that for the yeah the coronavirus special. We use yeah. that. Um, and the government solution to a problem is usually as bad as the problem. And that's kind of his thing. Because when we're talking about oh you know market failure, he'd be like, yeah, markets do fail, but the government failures yeah. worse. Which is what we teach, yeah. isn't it, in our first year? That idea, market failure, yeah. government intervention, government failure, potentially worse. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a couple of, couple more just which really do uh, sort of get across his sort of dislike of government. Hell have no fury like a bureaucrat scorned. And only government can take perfectly good paper, cover it with perfectly good ink, and make the combination worthless. Wow. <laughs> and one more. Because, uh, again, we've talked about sort of themes running through his work. He bangs on all the time about freedom. You've mentioned that a couple of times. But he said, a society that puts equality ahead of freedom will end up with neither. Oh, there you go. I've got one quote. Yeah, go on then. Uh, it's the major error, in my opinion, is to believe that it is possible to do good with other people's money. 
Right. There you go. Now, the reason I, I have that quote is because there's a film called Other People's Money. Hmm. Right, which is a very famous film about kind of corporate takeover. Quiz question. Yeah. Who is the main actor in Other People's Money? The fact that it's the, you've never really heard of that film yeah. does slightly concern me. I'm going to give you a little clue. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He's probably as short as Milton Friedman. Tom Cruise. Actually, Tom Cruise is quite tall, I think. Is he? Five or six, five or seven. No, someone's shorter than him. Probably looks a little bit like Freeman. Uh, Danny DeVito? Correct. Oh, he look like Milton Freeman. (laughs) Small glasses. Smaller glasses. I don't think Freeman's chubby. I always think Danny DeVito's quite chubby. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, Gregory Peck's in it as well. Yeah. Can I just say it's an excellent film and if you go and have a look for like, you know, little moments you want to show in class related to capitalism. Right. You know, like, I mean, most people show Wall Street, the greed is good stuff. Yeah. That's a brilliant film to yeah. show quotes from. Right. Uh, Ting-a-ling-a-ling. Oh, yeah, I forgot the bell. Is it? Sorry. Is yeah. it tingling a ting time? It is, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, forgot the bell. Forgot okay, the bell let's go. Oh, we're okay. So, uh, what do the critics say about Freeman? Uh, one assumes Chile is going to get a mention. Here. Yeah, so I'm going to come up with a technical one, first of all. You know, this sort of magnum opus, this uh, book he wrote with Anna Schwartz. Yeah. Um, I was reading somewhere that some people say, well, look, his isolated money is being strongly correlated with boom and bust. But he didn't sort of successfully, in the view of some critics, outline what the transmission mechanism was. I'm getting a bit technical there, but it's like, yeah. how how does money affect sort of the real economy? Uh, so I want to say something a little bit about that, actually. Because yeah. obviously, he, the impression I get is he won the Nobel Prize for that, didn't he? I know, I know it's his body of work, yeah, yeah. but the impression I got is is that that was the key bit. And yeah. it's quite interesting. Again, we've spoken a lot about females getting kind of written out of yeah. stuff. And that Anna J. Schwartz, I mean, if you go and have a look at her life, yeah. I mean, she is an amazing yeah, character, yeah, yeah. you know. And she, it would have been I'd a perfect I'd, opportunity I'd, yeah. for them to say Friedman and Schwartz. I'll say a couple of things about that. I think we need to be fair to Friedman. He was very, Friedman, he was very generous in saying, look, it's her work as much as mine. So right. I don't think he was sort of looking yeah, at no, me. No, 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 I know. And yeah. secondly... <laughs> he actually, I think after he'd had a nice meal, perhaps, or maybe before, from the Nobel crew, said, I don't really agree with sort of this whole prize business because, you know, who are you to, not that you're, there's nothing wrong with you, but who are you amongst all our, yeah. sort of my peers as economists in a position to sort of judge yeah. sort of my work ahead of someone else's. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I felt sorry for Anna J. Schwartz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Friedman did say, as he was reading some, he wrote this quite funny speech about, like, how do you get a Nobel Prize? And he sort of, he, he did some sort of statistics on it. He said, well, firstly, be an American, oh. more likely to win. Secondly, be a man. Because at the time, yeah. I don't think uh, a woman had, had, had won it. And he did, he mentioned John Robinson. He said she was probably, you know, in deserving of it and yeah. didn't get it, you know. And she was completely opposed to Friedman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although they had some quite funny banter, like apparently she, he, she was, in, he was in the audience at one of her lectures, and he, he, he got, her, he said, "Come on, you get up on stage with me, Milton, and yeah, right, we'll sort okay. of have a little ding dong." But he, she could be quite scathing about yeah, it yeah. now. She said his ideas were dotty. Yeah. And so one of her students said, "Oh, you've been talking to Mephist- Mephist- Mephistopheles." <laughs> one of the things I found <laughs> about Freeman when I watched him 
is I always did think that he rephrased people's questions. Yeah, I don't know if this is a criticism or not, but he kind of say, you know, in these kind of round table free to, ch- mm. you know, like things, he'd say, what I think you're saying here is this. Mm. And then that got him to talk yeah, about, it? you know, br- brilliant debater. That's yeah, the thing. That's yeah, the thing yeah, is yeah. that he was so superb at doing that. And I'm quite impressed yeah. by it. Anyway, what's, what's your other... Um, so I guess the other main one is you can argue monetarism didn't work. You know, there was a sort of a, a major effort to put monetarism into practice, particularly in the UK, direct control of the money supply. It will bring down inflation. Uh, we'll be able to control the monetary variables. And, and it didn't work. You know, they kept setting different monetary variables to track. And, um, you know, that particular sort of approach didn't work. I mean, you could argue they also did other things that he would be perfectly comfortable with, supply-side policies, privatisation, rolling back of the state. But that, let's control the money supply, it will control inflation. They couldn't control the money supply. So it it failed. I mean, you do get some people saying, oh, well, it was never really tried properly, but it's a bit like the sort of Marxist get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, yeah, no, Marx has never been tried, do you think? Well, come on, it has a bit, you know. There's been quite, at one point, you know, a good third to a half of the globe was doing sort of Marxist sort of stuff. Yeah. And similarly, you've got a major economy endeavouring to sort of apply sort of Friedman's monetarist ideas and it didn't work. Yeah. So I think that that's a pretty major criticism. And the other one um, is the sort of Chilean controversy. Yeah. I don't know if you want to say something about that, but basically um, Friedman sort of went to give lectures in uh, Chile, which at the time had a very dodgy regime under the leadership of General Pinochet. Yeah, we've got some quotes here. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about this later about Naomi Klein's book, but uh, this is one of his, his quotes. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And so obviously, his ideas were lying around. And this is the thing is that the criticism is that whenever there's a crisis... Mm. he sees or his maybe people his followers as it were Mm. see it as an opportunity to go in there and basically make everything Mm. pretty much free market um and you know the idea with regards to chile is that they kind of wanted a a testing ground for it and uh what they did is that they kind of got lots of kind of students from chile to study at the University of Chicago mm. to kind of, as it were, indoctrinate them, I suppose, <laughs> with regards to these kind of the viewpoints. It's kind of quite interesting because when he first went to, uh, uh, to to Chile to try and, or not him, but uh, the, the organisers, they went to the University of Chile, which mm. is like the big university there, and they basically turned them down and said, no, we want to have some sort of say in terms of what's going on here. So they went to the, what was it, the Chile's Catholic University, who basically said yes, because it was the best massive income of money. And so then what ended up happening is that they end up being taught by this Chicago University into mm. the free market ideals, blah, 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 blah. They end up kind of creating this kind of big economic document called uh, The Brick. Mm. They were known as the Chicago Boys in mm. Chile, and ultimately... Uh, it involved the CIA, a coup, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And his ideas got put into action in a very, very brutal regime. Mm. Now, obviously, you could talk about this for ages, and I would just encourage people to read The Shock Doctrine. But this is the thing about that he's kind of... that. So we should say The Shock Doctrine is a book by Naomi Klein. Yeah. 
and he saw it that you had to have this kind of shock treatment sometimes within mm. economic systems to kind of maybe get things kind of going. Yeah, and, and so it's seen as a free market experiment, Dan and Jenny. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see. Yeah, I mean, I think he, to be fair to him, did defend a lot of the criticism. He said, look, I'll go anywhere to speak about economics almost. Well, you know, yeah, he uh, said he was a technical advisor, which I said earlier yeah, on, which was his yeah. kind of get-out clause. But he was obviously booed, wasn't he, at the Nobel Prize Award? Yeah. You know, and someone, I think, told the person to get out. But what's quite interesting, I think the year after, mm. the Nobel Peace Prize was won by Amnesty International. Mm. No, I think, who were highlighting a lot of the abuses going on in Chile yeah. and there's a kind of an irony about that um, yeah. you know so the, yeah a kind of a huge yeah. huge criticism uh, yeah I mean the, Ch the Chilean regime under Pinochet was, yeah, was dodgy there's no doubt yeah. about that I mean unfortunately to our sort of uh, shame you know the Thatcher government in this country had very strong links with sort yeah. of General Pinochet but you can see that kind of thing I mean we talked um, in our uh, um, again coronavirus episode about you know, mm. would we see this after the coronavirus? You know, this yeah. is an opportunity where potentially it could be some shock treatment. And, and we discussed um, Hurricane Katrina, where again, there was a lot of, Friedman wrote this essay about, like, this is an opportunity to bring in a kind of um, a, a charter school system and, and you know, mm. again, making a free uh, market in, in that respect. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an interesting one. There, there's a... The, going on about, obviously, free markets and school and schooling, he wanted to bring in you know, this kind of system of school vouchers mm. to bring about competition within schools. And again, one of the criticisms of it is that that actually has a kind of a real racist past. The, the kind of first time that that ever was brought in was in this place called the Prince uh, Edward County, yeah, right. where basically there was a segregated school system, um, you know, from the kind of Jim Crow area in 1951. So they had... Um, a school for white kids, which was, um, I think, what was it? The Farmville High School for whites. And then they had Morton High School for black children. Mm. And uh, what ended up happening is the Morton High School was, you know, completely, uh, you know, overcrowded. They had no cafeteria, no gym, no heating system. And what happened is that the kind of voucher system ended up coming in after... Uh, the Prince Edward County were taken to court within this kind of mass lawsuit. What was it called? It was called the Brown and Board of Education oh, lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very famous case. Yeah, and the way that they could kind of get around the fact that they weren't allowed to segregate anymore was to bring in a kind of a private voucher system for the white kids to kind of carry on going to these decent mm. schools. But can I just say, just I, I know this is a completely separate point, but I was reading about this today. It's amazing. Um, person who kind of started the uh, student protest in the Morton High School for, for, for these kids. Mm. It was this 16 year old girl called Barbara Johns who mm. basically started the student strike. <laughs> the story is fascinating because what she did, she told the principal, the head teacher, mm. oh, there's some trouble going around downtown. Mm. And so he went off site downtown. Mm. And then she basically forged a memo for all the teachers to bring the students to a special assembly. Mm. And in the memo, it told them that once they brought the students to the assembly, the teachers had to leave. Right. When they left, mm. she then got up on stage and basically said, what are we going to do about this? Wow. You know, spoke to 450 students yeah. and the school was only built for 200 students. 
yeah. and said, look, we need to make some changes here. Yeah. What are we going to do? And so they, they started striking. Yeah. And apparently she's like this kind of, one of the kind of hidden sort of figures from the yeah. civil rights movement because she was only 16 years of age. But amazing, really. Amazing. Ended up becoming a librarian. Barbara Johnson. Hmm. But there you go. But it's an, it's an interesting thing because he wanted to bring competition in schools using this voucher system and people say look it's got this kind of racist past mm. and it actually has led to more segregation yeah. you know and it's interesting because we obviously have this academy system over here now where people have said it's kind of quite controversial because you can have sort of maybe a bit more freedom in terms of mm. entry requirements mm-hmm. and there's been some scandals isn't there about mm. people off-rolling students yeah. and this has been the case in America there's mm. a system in America where basically in order to kind of pass the year you've got to kind of keep up with all your assessments and yeah. so teachers get pressurised on the yeah. kind of rubbishy students to just bung in more assessments yeah. and so they eventually can kick them off roll yeah. because what ultimately happens isn't it when you've got competition in the school system is it skews yeah. your thinking yeah. and you know yeah. you want results at any cost yeah. and that is one of the big issues about well it's similar you know, this, is, this is where you get into sort of muddy waters in terms of if you start setting targets in the NHS and things like yeah. that as well, you end up with perverse sort of incentives to sort of for doctors not to treat the riskier patients. Yeah. Because if you, because I think they were talking, I think they've done this surgeon's sort of records now, sort of appearing in the public domain. But you could be the surgeon thinking that's a really difficult case. I'll take them on, but then more people die. Yeah. But it, you know, it will create. Uh, eventually, if you get like a poor record, you might think, well, I'm not gonna. Yeah sort of take on those those more difficult cases. And I think that's where you sort of get into this sort of unnuanced application of the free market yeah, to every yeah. sphere of, yeah. of life. You just end up with unforeseen consequences. But he, but yeah. again, he was fascinating. There's a, there a great one where, I say great, he talks about equality acts. He mm. said, he just doesn't agree with equality acts. So it's mm. like, look, ultimately, if um, people are racist or yeah. sexist, yeah then the people who are racist or sexist should bear the cost of their racism and sexism. Yeah. So, you know, what happens is that if you bring in an equal pay act, Mm. well, they actually kind of benefit from it because they're going to pay, you know, whatever the rate is and they'll just, you know, pay, get whoever Mm. they want. But the only uh, thing that maybe a female could do or, you know, racial minority might be able to do is to offer a, a lower wage yeah. and an equal pay act stops them having that advantage yeah so you think that he, you know so i mean it's it about kind of, bearing the cost of racism and this is <laughs> where you kind of think yeah but it's this kind of desire to sort of cost everything which is a limitation of most mainstream economics but i remember reading that well companies that are racist will end up losing out yeah. you know they'll end up less profitable and you think Really? You know, yeah. it's like, well, they might do, but you're assuming that everyone is motivated by profits. Some people are just racist. They yeah. might, like, actually sacrifice profits to be racist, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and you kind of think it's not all about sort of profits. You know, It is, like, it is a really in- yeah. interesting idea, though. Yeah. No, but it is. It's yeah. interesting. It's thought-provoking, and I kept coming back yeah. to this. You know, you start thinking, I disagree with that, but yeah. why do I disagree with it? Yeah. And this is why I think that even, you know, people at the left and the centre, they should read Friedman, because it, it, it does yeah. sharpen up your act. You kind yeah. of think... He's very pugnacious, isn't he? He's he is pugnacious, yeah, yeah. and he's very persuasive yeah. as well. There's a great... I mean, he describes himself, which I love, as an old-fashioned preacher delivering a Sunday sermon. <laughs> and, and that is so true when you're watching. You're like, oh, my word, I feel as if I'm... 
yeah, yeah kind mm. of with him here. Yeah. But there's, anyway. a, there's a good defence that we should recommend, actually, of um, Friedman by Russ Roberts, yeah. you know, sort of the podcaster um, and fellow, Hoover Institute fellow. But he does a, a really good rebuttal of some of the more sort of extreme sort of criticisms of freedom. Uh, Friedman and, and you should you should people should read that yeah. well, if they want to get yeah. a more sort of nuanced uh, version there are by the way lots of support for his view of the Great Depression and you can actually see the response to the last financial crisis as being partly informed by Friedman's work you know quantitative easing being brought in yeah. to solve this potential lack of liquidity and not replicate the the uh, mistakes of the Federal Reserve in the 1930s you know I think so that's definitely support for his view. Yeah. Food time. What are we eating today, Pete? There's a spurious link to the economist in question. Now, when we first started doing this podcast, we kind of mildly discussed Freeman, and I thought it was something to do with Chicago pizzas. Yeah, I did think about Chicago pizzas, but I'm not sure I could offer anything. Uh, you know, you just have to buy one from a shop, wouldn't you? you know, Deep-filled Chicago <laughs> okay, pizza. Uh, I did look up, you know, the Nobel banquet. You know, you can always yeah, do that. It's a very nice thing that's been served. Yeah, it's, it's great that. You should, everyone should yeah. look that up. It's fascinating. I did look up sort of iconic Chicago foods and where to eat them. There's something called malort, some sort of strange liqueur, which uh, sounds disgusting, actually, Yeah, that you can drink in Chicago. So if I'm ever there, I'll definitely have some of that. Uh, but what I decided to do was actually, uh, well, I can't make it to you because obviously we're separate. Yeah. But I've sent you the recipe to, yeah. which I hope you got, a cocktail Love it. called the Chicago Fizz. Yeah. Okay. So well, I think we should bring pause it on. briefly. While we make them. While we make them, yeah. In our separate abodes. So, Gav, I think we are back in the room now. Right, lovely. Right. And what are, we, what are we having again? Well, as you know, Gavin, this is called a Chicago Fizz. Chicago Fizz. Okay, well, I'm pouring it. So, do you want to describe the colour of it to the it's listeners? It's kind of plumish. Yeah. Plummy. Looks yeah. red. Yeah. Feels quite cold. Yeah. So, I've poured that out. Yes, yeah, so that's the port, the red colour, yeah. All right, that takes a bit of a while, doesn't it? Ooh, what's all that? That's the egg white, yeah. Oh, hold up. <laughs> it's minging. Okay, right. Oh, hello. And yeah, just topping up here. And what's it called? Sorry, what was it again? Chicago Fizz. And did, do we know if Friedman ever had one of these? I don't know if Friedman ever had one of these, but let's right. imagine he did. Okay, jolly good. Well, bon appetit. Yeah, yeah. Chimp. Mmm. Oh, I've got a bit of the old egg yolk straight away. Egg white, egg white. Egg white. <laughs> oh, it's pretty minging. <laughs> you can taste the port. <laughs> oh, jeez. So you're enjoying that? Well, I reckon Freeman didn't have this. <laughs> mm. Right, okay. He might have, well, who knows. Anyway, um, try it, uh, everyone. Um, we'll put the recipe online for you to enjoy this delight. Right. Uh, as well. Crack on. Okay, ding, ding, ding. What is your favourite story about Freeman that you came across when reading up on him? Well, I did like the, the pay-as-you-earn story. All right. You know, the, I think we retailed this earlier about how his wife sort of admonished him in later years mm. for coming up with this system of withholding tax. Right. Know? 
I did quite like the joke about Galbraith and Friedman as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any funny stories? Not really. I mean, I did find it interesting, that thing about the, as a statistician, that there he was thinking he'd come up with this great thing and it was the strength of a ripe banana. I mean, yeah. because, you know, ultimately, as we said, he's come up with this great system and then you kind of impose it somewhere and it yeah. well, might not be as good as it. Anyway, I think we okay. covered a lot of that anyway. Yeah. So okay, right, okay. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. We're trying to appeal to the younger demographic and all the geeks out there. And remember, as we always say, every podcast, we don't see geeks as a dirty word. We embrace them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Freeman was a character in the Marvel Universe or Star Wars. Who would he be and why? Well, it kind of depends whether you come away from this episode or, I mean, read more about freedom. Yeah. So whether you think he's on the dark side. Well, or on okay. the side of the force. Well, because you could say Yoda. It's quite right. short. It's quite funny. <laughs> Yoda, yeah. yeah. Or you could say the Emperor Palpatine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this shadowy figure behind all that is evil in the world of economics. Well, the thing is, though, yeah. is this is one of the first times I've got some crowd interaction on this. All right. Yeah. And the someone said um, one of our, uh, our listeners. Uh, suggested that they have to be um, a, a, a freedom fighter. Yeah. Got to be a Jedi. Yeah. Sorry, not a Jedi, you know, on the... Yeah, on the, yeah. freedom, freedom, freedom. Yeah. yeah. And so therefore... So against the side of the... They suggested Ben Kenobi. Right, interesting. But Yoda probably is a better fit because of his small nature, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, Marvel Universe, I did struggle. Again, dependent on whether you think he's good or bad. Yeah. Green Goblin. Right. Or Ant-Man. Well, again, crowdsourced. Yeah, said they they said it was just obvious. What Captain America? Oh right, yeah. yeah. And I kind of thought, yeah, that's a really good one. You know, yeah, fighting yeah. for freedom. Because I think in Civil yeah. War, he's the one who dis- disagrees yeah. to sign the government. He's on that side, isn't he? He refuses to sign the government regulation. Yeah, of superheroes. Isn't yeah, he? and I think Iron Man's the corporate one, isn't he? Uh, isn't it? I'm sure it is, because it's obviously Iron Man versus Captain America, yeah. and I'm sure Captain America... Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it's very, very sort of pro-American, though, like in the sense of like everything that American had to offer. I actually think Friedman would be horrified by Trump. Right. You know, just the sort of anti-immigration, because he was very pro-immigration. Pro- yeah. What, why did you say Iron Man? Is it just because of his size? <laughs> yeah. You get, you've gone quite smallest. <laughs> This has been revealed. Uh, this I'm has a, been revealed. I'm not that tall myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm five foot nine and a half, but I always round okay. up to five ten. Why? Why um, the Green Goblin? He wasn't small. He was small. Was he? He's a goblin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, who are we going to go for? Uh, we go for Yoda and Captain America. Yeah. 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 We, we okay. All, we, you know, we're a positive podcast. Yeah, we are. We are. Okay. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. What books would you recommend if people want to learn more about Friedman or some of his ideas? Well, loads of his own ideas are very easy to read and very well communicated. Right. Uh, probably, I'd say, probably along with Galbraith, first person with a right to be called like a popular economist. Right. There's loads of them these days, aren't they? Like, yeah. You Tim know, Harford. Tim yeah. Harford, you know, people who popularise economic ideas. Yeah. Uh, but he was probably the first to do that, right. along with Galbraith, and do it really, really well. So lots of his own ideas. It's great to hear him in his own voice. You, you know, yeah. he's, he's very persuasive. And the free-to-choose sort of TV series, the yeah, PBS brilliant. series, 
Um, that's all available. I found myself disagreeing with a lot of it, uh, or not well, not a lot of it, but some of it. Um, yeah. But he's very persuasive. Loads kind of great of interviews. Loads yeah. of great interviews. And he'll take on anyone. Yeah. You know, people like he's there in a room, sort of after a lot of these um, the shows. There's like a roundtable discussion afterwards. Yeah. And there's a whole sort of group of people almost ganging up to have yeah. a go at him. There's a great one. And he Peter just Jays. Sits, Do you remember yeah. Peter Jays? No. Like a kind of political. No, you content. mentioned this one. Yeah, before, it's yeah. a really good one. Because he's kind of highlighting this fact that he thinks he puts these kind of straw man arguments out that basically anyone who wants some sort of government intervention, you know, wants complete equality. Yeah. And that, that is a criticism of him, really. Yeah. You know, and, and Jay's kind of goes on the attack and says, no, we don't think that. But you are trying to portray yeah. that everyone wants pure equality yeah. and that's not the case, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's yeah, it's great to watch. Yeah, I mean, other things I'd recommend. I mean, the one that economists probably recommend the most is that Monetary History of the U.S. with Anna Schwartz. Yeah. I've not read it, but it's a very highly regarded piece of economic history. If you go on the Hoover Institute's website, there's a Milton Friedman collection. Right, uh, a lot of it's sort of biographical stuff, but that that's well worth a read. There's a Medium article that was recently published, which is a defense of sort of Friedman by. Russ Roberts, a couple of critiques. Uh, there's a book I read years ago called Mrs. Thatcher's Failed Experiment, right. which is an old book now by William Keegan. Okay, uh, oh, yeah, Keegan. Yeah. And then, obviously, Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctor. Yes, yeah. yeah. So would you add to that? Well, his book, Capitalism and Freedom, is yeah. described as the global free market rule book. Right. Well, so, I mean, that is by Klein. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, by people who are kind of... Um, we've got to say Linda again. Always comes yeah. up. I mean, yeah. yeah, great economists. Um, yeah. One of the ones I read for this one was Todd G. Bullcod's yeah. New Ideas from Dead Economists. So, and I thought that was that was excellent. Okay, um, but oh, and yeah, I, I know I I think I've gone on about this probably a few podcasts, but the Fifth Risk again by Michael Lewis. Yeah, and the reason I say that is because that book is all about getting rid of all these government departments. You know, yeah. what happens when you get rid of them? There's a, there's potentially an issue. And if you go and have a look at what Friedman wanted, he wanted to get rid of the FDA. He wanted to get rid of all these, yeah, yeah. you know, the agencies in America, mm. which is exactly what, again, Lewis looks at and says, look, this is what happens when you get rid of all this funding. Yeah. The whole place falls apart. Yeah. And so uh, even though you say it may maybe be horrified by Trump's views on certain things, yeah, he'd probably be delighted him. about the fact that he's not funding... Yeah. These these yeah. kind of agencies. No, point, so there you yeah. go. All right. Uh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Ding a ling a ling. If Freeman was a boxer, what do you think his mu- walk on music would be, uh, and why? Well, I thought the Rocky theme music, "Living in America." <laughs> yeah. Because obviously it's boxing, and yeah. it's sort of you know he's, yeah, patri- he's patriotic, one, yeah. and he is yeah. very sort of pro sort of the freedom of living in America. Yeah. Freedom yeah. by one. Yeah, I've got Freedom 90 by George Michael. It's, what's Freedom by Wham? I was thinking yeah, no, Freedom George is by Wham, but yeah. Freedom 90 is, is more, I think, a relevant yeah. form of freedom because it's about him breaking away, yeah. you know. I'm free, Soup Dragons. I'm free. Yeah, we had that for someone else, didn't we? Hayek, was it? Hayek, yeah. And then I thought, because he like, was um, from New Jersey, in effect. Yeah. So would it Sopranos? You know the Sopranos? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know the Sopranos theme music? Right. I don't know the Sopranos theme. No, because we've discussed this before. I've yeah. never really watched it. You've got to watch Sopranos. <laughs> but it's like the theme music, but I think about Alabama 3, it's like... 
Woke up this morning. Right. Be quite good boxing me. Found myself okay. a beer. I've got a New Jersey this one. Morning. Because which famous uh, rock band comes from New Jersey? It's not pretty Springsteen, is it? No, Bon Jovi. Well, oh, Springsteen might, but yeah. Bon Jovi famously did. I guess it was one of their albums. Oh, New yeah. Jersey. Um, and I thought that their song Bad Medicine might be quite good. Right. Because... Your love is like bad medicine, but bad medicine is what I need. Right. You know, it's kind of like people kind of criticise and say, look, you don't want that. Yeah. But maybe it's what some countries yeah. need. Yeah. But uh, have you got any other? Sorry. No. Okay. I, I've got um, Street Fighting Man by Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, he's punchy. Do, do, do you know he's what? Punchy. Of all the people we've looked at, I think he would be quite a good yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. You know, lightweight. Strawweight. Small. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, Weapon of Choice uh, by Fat Boy Slim and Bootsy Collins. Yeah. Quite a little funky number. And I thought for the Chicago boys, yeah. boys are back in town, Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. But I did think that we could have come up maybe with a Chicago song yeah. and maybe something in Brooklyn. But what do you think? I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let, look, let's go for Freedom 90 by George Michael. Okay. Because basically we both said it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A coincidence of once. Yeah. Okay. Poetry Corner is your favourite spot, Pete. It's my favourite spot. Okay. So, so as you got... always, I'm going to read out the first yeah. couple of lines. Ready? Okay. So, Milton Friedman. Which economist wrote a book with his wife and showed us all... How to live our life. That, my friend, is Milton Friedman, who kick-started a free market revolution. Advisor to Reagan, big in the 80s, liked by those who could afford a Mercedes. He built his reputation in the city of Chicago, but saw his global influence grow and grow. His ideas were exported to countries like Chile, often imposed, not voted democratically. Low taxes and a minimal state were all the things he thought were great. He is known as the father of monetarism and agreed with MV equals PT mechanism. He thought that we should be free to choose and dislike most of Keynes's views. But should his policies have been imposed across South America, where it's often opposed? As a trade unionist, are you free to choose if it's looking likely your life you might lose? If you don't believe that people were freed, then the shock doctrine is the book you should read. Oof. I mean, a book recommendation in a poem. As always, powerful stuff. <laughs> So, there you go. Uh, right, okay. Ding a ling ling. Do we like him? Would we ever be with him? Do you know what? I think he'd be really good company. Yeah. You know, I think we'd have a good day out. You know, we could drink Chicago for his cocktails. We could have deep filled Chicago pizzas, which I didn't make you, and I can sense you're slightly disappointed by. Yeah. Uh, but there we are. Uh, yeah, no, I think he'd be good company. And ultimately, do we like him? You know, I thought about this before I sort of researched freedom. I thought I wouldn't like him, and I did like him. I like I liked him as a person. I thought, uh, you know, and I actually had more sympathy with some of his views than I thought I would. Ultimately, I think we would disagree. But I suppose you've got to remember as well when he's writing. You know, in in the seventies, you could argue that maybe you needed that counterpoint. Maybe the government was growing too fast. You know, and we look at it now back and think, well, actually, maybe the government shrunk too much yeah. again. But, you know, maybe at the time that counterpoint was needed and maybe the pendulum swung too far in the other way. It's interesting, though, because you talked about the environment because 
certainly in the work in the works I read or you know the research I did about freedom freedom there isn't much about sort of market failure you know it's much more about oh no the government can't intervene even if there is market failure because the government will make things quite worse and it's almost a bit does it always yeah you know there's a sort of an ideological um well on that note can i just say this is a good opportunity to come in with one of my last quotes uh walter heller who was apparently a kennedy uh economist uh, and he once described Friedman's followers, uh, or put them into these categories. He said, some are Friedmanly, some Friedmanian, some Friedman-esque, some Friedmanic, and some Friedmaniacs. Right. Where yeah. do you think we are? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think... We probably not. But, you know, yeah, but it is not, that thing about, is potentially there are people who will go to incredible extremes following his yeah. viewpoint yeah and certainly he's a very polite man he would entertain anyone yeah. and he would t- he would talk to anyone and there's a quote I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in a moment I'll come out with but just going back to whether we like I mean ultimately he's a thought provoking thinker and what I would say to anyone particularly people on the left I guess you know you should read him it'll sharpen your own thought if nothing else you'll think well, why do I disagree with him and it will make it'll make you sort mm. of because he's a he's a compelling speaker, and if you can't refute what he says, yeah. then you know you, you need to be able to. I mean, he is a master rhetoric, you know, a master of rhetoric, and and that doesn't mean he's always right. You know, sometimes I think because people are confident, compelling yeah. sort of speakers, we get an authority bias. Yeah, and you can me, you know, and he's a very yeah. articulate man as well. Um, but I suppose the other thing area which I came down on it's not you know I guess I do like him you know I think we've said that a few times but I think perhaps what's missing is maybe an awareness of institutions you talked about the sort of shock doctrine and you think I think people did quite actively think right Russia post-communism we're going to get in there we're going to turn it into a free market economy without really thinking through the idea that um you know these institutions which facilitate a free market in the UK in the US developed over sort of many decades to sort of develop them overnight is 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 that feasible and you look at russia now which is sort of you know and apologies to our russian listeners but i don't think it's a healthy state and i think you've got the worst of both worlds there you've got kind of crony sort of capitalism at work there and the imf informed i think in part by sort of friedmanite thinking went in there and you know you know yeah, yeah. So that structural adjustment which yeah. we talked about, which I think was informed by Friedman's thinking, but he's not, he's not, <laughs> he's not the devil incarnate. And I think that, you know, the Ross Roberts sort of refu- refutation of sort of one of the more extreme criticisms of Friedman is worth worth a read. But well, I guess he'd argue he's a technical advisor. <laughs> <laughs> well, fundamentally, I guess I see a broader role for government than he would allow. You know, and I think he is very negative and he's funny about it but you kind of think well ultimately you know for me the government has done good yeah. at times and you know we've come back to this before you know successful states like in scandinavia have got a larger role for government yeah and they seem to sort of be more successful in promoting the welfare of their citizens and yet they're still market economies you know it's not to say yeah. there isn't a role for the market but i guess you know the, I, I you know i believe the market is a great thing but like, you know, fire, you know, you can't let it sort of get out of control. Perhaps at times Lovely it needs sort of some form of It's like fire. I think that's a simile. Simile. 
But anyway, I'm sure we did, I'm sure if we went out for dinner with him, he'd be great company. I think he would. He, he, he would, would run rings round us. We'd yeah. go away thinking, I still disagree with him. Yeah, but we've even had a good though, life. but we've had a good old. We wouldn't life. drink that though. Yeah, the Chicago <laughs> piss. Being rude about. It. Yeah. Anyway, little quote because someone yeah. asked him in an interview. What? Oh no, I don't because you wanted to end on this, didn't you? Yeah, I did. No, yeah. can I before you end on that? Yeah, okay. so he gets yeah. the last word. Okay. I, I just want a quote from Gary Becker. Yeah. Because okay. the thing, we're obviously teachers. Yeah, yeah. Right? And we yeah. love the subject. And yeah. we hope that the people who listen to this love the subject. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. Now, when I was watching Friedman, and, and I, I'm sure it's the same with you, you get his joy of the he subject. He loves that kind right. of thing. And this is what Gary Becker says, right? It's a brilliant quote. People would ask me, why are you so excited? Are you going out with a beautiful woman? No. I'm going to a class in economics. Being a student of Milton was magic indeed. <laughs> and that, and that, that's the thing, is that you could imagine going, oh, it's Freeman's lessons next. Yeah, you know, yeah, I hope, yeah. I don't, you know, I'd love to, to think that they, they would say that. Oh, it's, it's Pooch's lesson. Like, oh, Clifty's Clifty. It's Mr. Cliff's lesson next. Sure, or, everyone. Mr. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, it's Simo's lesson next. You know, oh, all my wait. students say that. <laughs> You know, but I'd love that, you know, that that, that happens, you know. Yeah. Why are you so excited? I've got his lesson next. He's got, oh, what, not a beautiful woman? No, we're going to do demand and supply stuff. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so last words for old Milton. Someone asked him, because obviously he had a very happy marriage. What is the secret to a happy marriage? So his wife said something. Then he said, I will answer briefly. I think two words describe it. One is love and the other is tolerance. I may say that that carries beyond marriage. I think the most important value in society is tolerance. Oliver Cromwell in England once said, By the bowels of Christ, I beseech thee, Methink you, you may be mistaken. And tolerance, the recognition that maybe someone who disagrees with you isn't wrong, isn't wicked, isn't evil, but just thinks differently. Well, yeah, That's a great quote, yeah? It's a quote of our times. Yeah. That is a t- Twitter quote there, it isn't is it? It is a quote for our times. Cromwell, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't always that tolerant. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't very tolerant in Ireland, if we've got any Irish listeners, which yeah. I know we have. Yeah, yeah it's so interesting. Yeah. So, moving on. Very good. Okay, ding-a-ling-a-ling. I mean, the thing is, that's basically the end of the episode, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, Who are we looking at next time? And, yeah. We're looking at Alfred Marshall, aren't we? Yeah. Look how very yeah. exciting looking at yeah. him. Looking forward to it. Okay, cool. That's very good. So uh, we'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you listen to our next podcast. Uh, We also like to thank our friend Nick, who gives us always technical advice with regards to podcasting. And uh, please remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Economics in 10. And as always, you can contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. And do remember, stay safe, wash your hands. Yeah, and I just want to do a very quick shout out to my brother, John, who unfortunately is holed up in hospital at the moment. But he's uh, doing really well. I saw him yeah. yesterday and he's an avid listener uh, to, to the podcast, yeah? So there we are. Yeah. And oh, we should say as well, sorry, that obviously we've got the book, uh, uh, Peter Gav's Excellent Economic Adventure. Yeah. Now, obviously, there, if, you, if you've got something to, you know, I don't know, like to share with us that we think is brilliant, yeah, we'll give you a copy of the book. We'll send you a book. Yeah. A free book to entertain your children during lockdown. Yeah, exactly. Priceless. It is priceless. And yeah. limited edition. Very limited. All right. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say, Pete? No. Thank you, everyone. And uh, goodbye for now. Bye-bye.